The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. In honor of Black History Month, we're featuring African Americans whose voices and perspectives we think you need to hear. So this week, we catch up with Tamron Hall, the former MSNBC and Today Show anchor. We talk about everything, life in TV, life after today, and what it means to be unapologetically black and unapologetically American. Tamron Hall, the Tamron Hall. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mr. Capehart. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. This is this is fun. This is fun. I mean, we 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 talk all the time yes. and have a little conversations, and now we're gonna let we're gonna let everybody everybody in. This is actually fun for many reasons because a we let people get a glimpse of our real lives and our real conversations, but also this is the first time you've ever interviewed me. I know. And, and you're a TV star. And I'm, I don't know about that. <laughs> and a radio star. No, you, no. And a podcast star. <laughs> and a paper star. Do they, you know how they have the EGOT, the Emmys, Grammy. Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Yeah, so you What'd are radio, TV, print. Was it RT? I would be Radio, TV, print, podcast. Right. Word up, Ripped. Ripped. I'm ripped. <laughs> Jonathan Kevart <Kmart> is ripped. <laughs> well, Tamron, I really appreciate you 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 coming on and and being on the podcast. People love you. I'm super grateful. Why do you think it is that you connect with not just one type of person, but with everybody? Why do you think that is? Gosh, I I it's not I. Oh, you just got me with that. On the first question, Jonathan K. Barr takes me down. Down goes Tamron. I think um, it's the way I was raised. I had and have a very inclusive family. My family is unapologetically black and supportive of our community, but also unapologetically American and supportive of this country and what we represent. Look, my, my dad, the only dad that I know, meaning I was raised by my stepfather, and we did not call each other step or half in our family. It was my dad. It's Clarence Newton Sr., and he was in the Army for nearly 30 years. And I grew up hearing my father tell how even though there was segregation out in the world, as he referred to it, he's like, I'm in Vietnam, and I'm there fighting alongside a white guy from Mississippi, and we are fighting together. And he always felt that the military with all of its flaws as well as it comes to race and gender was always more inclusive especially on the battlefield and I grew up hearing that and my mother here she was a kid from Luling Texas and raised by her father her mother passed away when she was 10 but talked about how my grandfather always demanded respect but not you know with beating on the table he had a second grade education and everyone in that town this segregated hard scrappy small town called him Mr. Mitchell. All the white guys, all the white men who might have looked down on other people of color saw something in my grandfather that demanded respect. And so I grew up with two very strong male role models in a very untraditional way. And I had great aunts around me who were like the Southern church women like you and I have in common. That's part of why we bond so much. We have these similar characters 
for lack of a better description, Mm -hmm. that form who we are. And there are aunts, our mother, our father figures, our male influencers in our lives. So I think that a lot of what I learned from them about the ability to be unapologetic about your community, about your roots, but always embrace others and their journey and finding this commonality. So I think that's what people sense is that I'm authentic to who I am, but I will always embrace who you are as well. I find it interesting you said that it was your grandfather who, Mr. Mitchell, Mm -hmm. who he demanded respect and even way back in olden times when African-Americans were blatantly and openly disrespected, he even had um, white people, white neighbors, white Oh, they were not uh, their neighbors. I mean, they oh, was, well, just yeah, folks yeah, around yeah, right, who called right. him town. who yeah. called him Mr. Mitchell. Yeah. What do you think it was about him? How was he able to bridge that very wide yeah. chasm that so many yeah. more people were not able to bridge? I wish, Jonathan. You know, when we look back at our lives and we could turn back time, as the song goes, um, I wish I had him here to ask him that. Um, you know, my grandfather passed away when I was in college. My sophomore year in college and I think like a lot of us I didn't spend a lot of time asking him these questions about who he was and how he became Mr. Mitchell and I don't know because there have been many great people great you know hard-working folks that would wake up with someone's shoe on their neck and did not deserve that um, when people currently talk about women who are victims of abuse whether it's domestic abuse or sexual abuse we would have the stereotype that this doesn't happen to the strong person, but of course right. it does. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, my family, there's a, a story that has always circulated in my family that when my grandfather, one night there had been a, a white man in our small town that was murdered and the Klan had come to my family's home. My and grandfather, this is in Texas. Luling, Texas. And they'd come to my grandfather's home, um, this, again, this shotgun shack on Cosi Drive in Luling, Texas. And, um, confronted, you know, people on the street who they wanted to know, you know, this vigilante group of men that my family said was the Klan. And my grandfather brought out all of his children, my uncles, my mom was a baby, and lined them up. And he had his pistol in his hand. And he said, you look at them closely and don't you touch one of them. These are all Mitchell kids. And as I understand, they were like, look, we're not, we don't want any trouble from you. We don't want any trouble from you. Like, he's the perpetrator of it, but he's protecting his family. Um, But that's the grandfather that I knew. But I wish, you know, this man was born in 1901. My great-grandmother was never married. She had three children, which was unheard of at that time, and never married. Um, And he was forced to, because his mother was so demanding, raise the family. He was her surrogate husband, Mm -hmm. if you will. meaning he was the breadwinner. He was the only boy. So he had to step up and be the man of the house. So that's kind of my background. And and I think that going back to the initial question, growing up and hearing all of these stories and understanding that life is complex and you can demand respect and not get it. And sometimes you demand it and you get it. That that's a part of the tapestry that I hope to bring to my profession and, and who I am as a human being beyond anything we do on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, I before we talk about the the profession, yeah. What does it mean to be, first, unapologetically black? And then what does it mean to be unapologetically American? Mm. Start with black. Well, I think with black, it is the sense that if you are 
some believe if you're too pro your community, you're anti someone else's. And we will shrink, shrink away from those conversations, especially people, and I'll say like you and I, where we are trying to, in some ways, assimilate. You know, we want to be at the table because of our talent, because of our hard work. We never want to be at the table because we are black. And so sometimes we shrink away from those things that make us special because of who we are as black people. So when I say I'm unapologetically black, I can sit in a business meeting and talk about my black culture and where I am and who I am. And I hope that that brings some relevance to the conversation and also uh whatever project I'm working on, my, my my background can somehow make this project better. So I think that being unapologetic about it is no longer being afraid to say, well, as a black woman, blah, 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 this is what I think. And not believe that the receiver of those words sees me as some, you know, pounding on my fist and I'm here and I want this job because I'm black. Mm -hmm. Because often when I've been in meetings and I say, well, as a black woman, this is how I feel about this or this is what I've experienced. You sometimes see the person on the other side of the table. Oh, here she goes with the black thing. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 that's who I am. And I remember it was someone who one day told me, listen, Joseph Lieberman is unapologetically Jewish. You can be unapologetically black. That doesn't mean you're anti anyone. Wait, someone had to tell say that to 100%. you. 100%. And I've always, listen, I have a Southern black family. I, I was going to say, who? But being in the work world and trying to sometimes fit in and sometimes wanting to at least, you, you know you're not threatening, but you know to someone else, your speaking up can be seen as a right. threatening behavior or threatening uh, disposition or demeanor. I've been called angry black woman, not to my face, but through their actions. And actually, you know what? Not to my face, but people have said it in these random tabloid articles. You're like, really? I was angry? No, I wasn't. And by the way, if I was, I'd be okay with being that. You know, and right. it's, it's like Michelle Obama said when she was described as being an angry black woman, she knew it was more about the reporter than about her because she's thinking, what I do? Right. You know, I just came in the room smiling. So when I say unapologetically black, it's to say I can be proud of my culture, but then that in no way diminishes what I think of someone else's culture. And I love, when I lived in Chicago, which is, I'm quite happy that I lived in Chicago for 10 years before I came to New York, because Chicago truly is a city of neighborhoods. And you do get to know, I mean, your, your, your people go to the Polish neighborhood, and I never knew what a punchki was, you know? And which I don't even is, know what that, what It's is an that? amazing, delicious donut of heaven. Oh. It's like a jelly donut. <laughs> and going into an Irish community, a traditional Irish community, Irish American community, and not just associating it with St. Patrick's Day. You know, so much of our lives are associated with holidays and parades right. when it comes to other cultures. But being a reporter in the streets of Chicago allowed me to go to Ukraine Village and see and eat at a traditional Ukrainian restaurant and talk to people. And so I have learned that you can be unapologetic about who you are. And it never means, and it never should mean, that it's a, a threatening gesture at someone else's culture and that you at any rate are measuring your background against theirs. And that's what it means for me. As far as unapologetically American, you know, there's a complexity. Uh, one of the things your pod listeners were, I'm a conspiracy theorist about a lot of things. Jonathan, this <laughs> she is sure is. I won't tell you my list, but I have a list <laughs> and I don't take anything at face value and I would advise you not to either. But <laughs> sidebar, unapologetically American is sometimes as black Americans, whether it's through the Black Panther movement, whether it's the civil rights movement, we've been painted as being un-American. Well, here's the fact of it is, there are American laws that have been used to oppress us, but we still love this country. I believe that the police brutality debate, 
oftentimes it was, you know, put in this category of being anti-police if you were questioning or or are concerned about the disproportionate number of black men unarmed killed by police. Well, I can be pro-police and pro-investigation when a police officer does something wrong. It doesn't mean you have to pick a side. And so often as black people, when we speak out, in my opinion, and as a media person for 25 years, I've seen where where people of color, women, I mean, look at the, the uh, Time's Up movement right now. I was just uh, uh, Tarana Burke, the woman who mm-hmm. started uh, the the um, the Me Too, the Me Too hashtag, movement. Yeah. She said last night in a joke, she's single and she goes, "Try being, you know, try dating." And you started the, the Me Too hashtag. She was like, "I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying I don't hate men. Just have to respect us." And so often again, so the Me Too has to be you hate men. It can't be no. I don't like creepy men or men who are rapists or men who are inappropriate in the workplace. But I still love men. You don't have to be one or the mm-hmm. other. You can be both. And that's what she was saying last night. You don't have to have a chip on your shoulder. This is not an, uh, a movement to get men fired. This is a movement to end what so many women have dealt with in the workplace, whether it is at the top of the food chain or people who feel like no one is listening to them. So for me, that coincides with the unapologetic, unapologetically an American sentiment. When, you know, Colin Kaepernick takes a knee, why can't we say that is not against America and listen to what he has to say? You may not have, you may not agree with it. Right. But to drape yourself in the flag and say he's a bad, evil guy, that's just, to me, wrong. And and not recognizing the fact that his taking the knee is his version of draping himself in the Absolutely. flag because the flag and the Constitution give him the right to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And no party, no race owns our military. No party, no race owns patriotism. It means everything different and everything similar to all of us. And I just feel that when I say that I unapologetically love this country. You can love something or someone and see all of their flaws and see all of their beauty at the same time. That's love. Mm -hmm. That's the unconditional love of this country that my father fought for. That's the love that a 14-year-old man in Texas who no longer wanted to bust tables and said, you know what, I'm going to go fight for this country. That's unconditional love because you could not come home to your real family and you're fighting for families you will never meet. You know, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the interview about your grandfather going over, uh, it was your father, yeah. going over to Vietnam mm-hmm. and as a black man fighting next to a, yeah. a white man from Mississippi. Right. And in that moment in the military, being able to bridge those divides mm-hmm. to fight for a common cause, meaning the country. Why don't you think we have been, we as Americans have been able to take that mindset in the foxhole in Vietnam, bridging our divides and seeing our common purpose here at home, where it is needed the most to see our common humanity and our what we're all trying to accomplish in this country. See, but I have a different view. I think we are. I think that we all go on social media and it's like, oh, what's trending on Twitter? That's a, what, 5% of the country is right. on social media? I mean, we blow these things up, you know, when we looked at Charlottesville, for example, and three people lost their lives, I'm the beautiful girl, Heather, the two law enforcement individuals who were there. But when we look at it, the majority of people were against that. That's true. That's true. But we 
And we should pay attention to the evil, how sm- however small it is. It should be erased. That is our goal. But, yeah, I'll, I'll take you to a quick example. I remember uh, being on The Orange Room. You know, you do what's trending or something when I was on the Today Show. And Miss, one of the beauty pageant contestants was a Muslim American. And the next morning, um, we did this... You know, all the backlash received about a Muslim American and a couple of tweets that came in that were offensive and they were horrible, no doubt about it. But we sat and did an entire segment on the horrible five tweets versus the thousands of, yes, you go, you do this. We are behind you. And so often, and I'll take it to myself personally. I mean, listen, I'm on social media. Jonathan and I, we have fun on it. It's great. (laughs) You can get and you know this, Jonathan, a thousand compliments. You get one, it's oh, yeah. like it's a it's a grenade. <laughs> it's like a grenade. And almost all the, the other people who are applauding your hard work, they vanish because something about our psyche attracts the negative and we feed into it. So for me, when we have this conversation about the divisiveness and how hard it is right now, these are all valid things. But yesterday I was at an event where Cicely Tyson received an award and Reverend Barber from mm-hmm. uh, North Carolina uh, was there. And he said, the next time your child or anyone comes to you and says, these are the worst times we've seen. He said, you stop them right there in their tracks. Jim Crow laws, slavery, the list goes on and on. You know, the oppression of women through legal means to keep us from voting. These are absolutely dangerous and questionable times. But to say this is the worst of what we've experienced implies that somehow we can't find a way to beat this back, whatever this means to you. But the notion that, and I, I thought that was powerful, and maybe this was confirmation bias, it's what I wanted to hear, <laughs> I don't know. But I felt very, very strongly about this idea that this is the worst that we have seen. I have a Holocaust survivor who lives, and he's a dear friend, wonderful man, Mr. Khan, and he talks to me from time to time, and he's just phenomenal, and he's in the twilight of his life. And I cannot imagine saying to him, this is the worst we've seen, right? And, I can't imagine it. Yeah. How did you get your start in TV? Oh, my gosh. So, uh, well, I was born talking fast and talking a lot <laughs> yeah. and being very nosy. <laughs> the, 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 three, the three things you need. Um, no, I, um, I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. I don't know how that came to be, but I always knew. And when I was growing up, I would always hang out with older people rather than the kids that were my age, you know, and, and they were like, just hey, get out of grown folks business. I'm like, what does that mean? I, and I want to know what this grown folks business is that you don't want me in. Right. You sort <laughs> of like, sidle up like, next to them. You just sort yeah, of sit like, close by and just, listen. You're like, go on grown folks business. Do tell. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I also loved hanging out. There was a woman across the street. She was my cousin. And, and I think some of your podcast uh, listeners from the South, we don't say cousins, we say cousin. And so my cousin Lovey lived across the street. And Lovey was my cousin, but she was like 100 years old. And I'm like seven. (laughs) (laughs) And I would love to hang out with her. And I could actually visually, in my mind, if I close my eyes, I see it. She had a a tree that naturally turned into kind of a a swing. And I would sit on the branch of this tree. And she loved those really soft peppermints, the kind that melt in your, you know, those, I don't know what Uh, they're called. Oh, they're white. They're they're, they're red and white, but you put them in and they like dissolve. dissolve. (laughs) Yeah. And I used to love those. And she had them. And I was the only kid that she would really let eat them. And I would go over and like get this whole bowl of peppermints. And I don't know if I was there for the company or the peppermints. (laughs) 
because um, they would give you epic diarrhea. After I was going to say, <laughs> you, you, like, you can't eat more you than like not. four of those. So you are. I think it's all sugar and like color dye or whatever. Anyway, I would sit there and I would talk to her about her life. And I, I now know I was interviewing her. And that's kind of what I consider my start. Uh, my actual resume start um, was in Philadelphia. The boxer Joe Frazier and his manager, Burt Watson, um, I met them through this really long story that one day we'll have to tell in Jonathan's book. And <laughs> they both uh, kind of believed in me and they got me an internship, a paid internship, because I was in I was at Temple University and I was on a Pell Grant, this Grant, <laughs> Hugh Grant. I don't <laughs> care. I was on everything. And um, and um, my um, I said, I would love an internship, but I've got to get paid. And that's why I did not work at my student radio station because it was like you didn't get paid and I was like oh that's cute but I need to get paid <laughs> the TV station I'll pay I'm good and so Wade Cable Vision was the first African-American owned cable company I believe maybe in the country but it was definitely the first in Pennsylvania and Joe had them hire me and I covered football baseball lacrosse field hockey wow all these random sports that I never part played. I didn't know yeah and uh, well, first I started out as the camera operator for football games, and I was terrible because it was always cold, and they would count. They was camera two, camera two, where are you? And I had my hands in my pocket. I'm like, wait, whoa, sorry, <laughs> I've missed the play or whatever. And they couldn't fire me because they were scared of Bert and Joe, and so they brought me down to do Chirons for football games, college football games, because they covered UPenn lacrosse, uh, UPenn LaSalle Drexel, um, and then they said do. Uh, downs and I can write and I can read but I cannot count even today if you give me change I'm just going to take the money and walk away so they were like the downs and the yards and I didn't know what I was doing I was getting it wrong and they were like okay you gotta go and then they put me on the sidelines and I started reporting like on the sidelines wait you just, wait they just put you on the sidelines they couldn't fire me Oh, so they were like, hey, let's just put her on TV. Yeah. Like, you want Joe Frazier to beat you up? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no. They, well, I had been lobbying to get on. Oh, I mean, okay. So yeah, it I wasn't want, like, here, let's just, yeah, let's just yeah, throw her this. Like, yeah, like, no, no, let me do this. Like let me do this. Lana Turner at the milkshake bar. No, no. Is that story they said she was <laughs> right. just sipping a right. milkshake in Hollywood? No, no, no. I had been lobbying and they knew I wanted to be a reporter. So it kind of organically happened. But prior to that, too, I used to do their commercials like, oh, if your cable bill is due, press one. If it's not, Right. Yeah, I don't know. Something oh, like, so, yeah. you do, so you you were the voice. I was of the voice, and I did station. little commercials. I mean, they put me in this little fake uh, room of operators, <laughs> and I was like, "You can call in your cable bill." Blah 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 right. blah. I don't remember the script, but I would walk through the aisles of fake telephone operators telling you how to call in your cable. <laughs> All right. So so they're like, "Oh God, get her get her on the field." You yeah. start doing that, mm-hmm. and then you jump from doing uh, local cable in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. in Philadelphia yeah. and let's just leapfrog yeah boom you're it's in Chicago show. no no <laughs> <laughs> no Chicago yes. first yes I where was, you yeah. you get there you blew up it's you know what I have to give a shout out to my friend Steve Pickett he's a reporter in um, Dallas Fort Worth at the CBS affiliate there and I was at the time debating an offer between um Miami and uh, the station in San Francisco was interested in me and uh, Chicago and warm temperate yeah well and, that's what I was thinking and ice cold well I knew I couldn't go to Miami because I was still in my party girl face I oh. knew I'd get fired <laughs> I was like ooh, I'll end up in America's most wanted so I can't go to Miami that was I actually took myself out of the Miami because I was like I wasn't I know it wouldn't have worked out for me I was too rambunctious back then um 
San Francisco appealing, but you know. But Steve came to me and he said, listen, go to Chicago. He said that that is a very strong television market. He said, but most important, some of the most important black journalists of modern times have come out of Chicago. And he wasn't just talking about Oprah at the time. He was talking about the countless writers that have been through there and other Max Robinson. Max Robinson, of course. So he was saying TV and print. You know, Valerie Jarrett was there. She's part of a storied um, print family. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he he said, you know, go to Chicago, go to Chicago. And I'd never been to Chicago. I went, I interviewed, I figured I'd get the job. I thought I'd done a good job in the interview and the taxi driver. I'll never forget this taxi driver. You know, you meet people and you wish you could find them. That's the show. Like, I wish I could find, find blah, blah, taxi blah. Driver. Yeah. And I'll never forget. He goes, don't take this job in Chicago. You go game weight and you're going to become drunk. That's all that happens in <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> and I was like, really? He's like, yeah, it's too cold here. I'm ready to get out of here. I'm from here and I'm ready to get out. I'm trying to go back south. All you're going to do is game weight and drink. And I often thought of this man over the years. I'm like, I wonder, did he remember that, that I, I was the woman in the taxi? Because this was before Uber said so he didn't have your name. You just paid and got out of the cab. <laughs> um, but I often, I did. And those are the kind of people I carry with me when you talk about relatability. Mm-hmm. That man is a part of my fiber because that was just something that stuck in my head. And you didn't gain, you didn't gain weight. I know well, that's to be debated. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> but I definitely became a drunk, and that's what Jonathan and I do at my home often. <laughs> Sitting in the kitchen. That's why you look at his Instagram, line. you'll see that Vuv Clicquot. That's from my house. <laughs> that picture. So, but in but in Chicago, so you, mm-hmm. did, you didn't you did leave. You mm-hmm. took the job. I took the job. You... I was a reporter for a year and a half, a general assignment reporter out in the streets of Chicago covering, you know, we talk a lot about Chicago crime now. That was the same story then, which is so interesting how... Uh, it, you know, uh, so I moved to Chicago in 1997, so 20 years ago, and we're still talking about the same crime epidemic in Chicago, different mayor, different people in city council, same story. Um, so I covered crime and I covered the city, just the city of Chicago for about a year and a half. And then I started this uh, consumer reporting segment that was nominated for an Emmy. We called it the bottom line. This is when the tech industry started to take off and everything was .com. Remember pets.com? Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, I remember doing a whole expose on pets.com. It was revolutionary. It's nowhere to be found now. But all of these like .com billionaires. And that was the beginning of that. Covered that. And then um, I was asked to fill in for this uh, woman who'd gone on maternity leave. And to fill in on the morning show there, and I was like, "Oh God, this never works out." Because you know, we already knew what was happening nationally. You're like, "Oh, maternity," and then somebody fills in, and right, it's just and then... disaster. Well, that's exactly what happened, and that'll be in my book, and I won't tell the rest of the story. But I became the anchor of the show, and um, it was uh, tumultuous in the beginning um, because it was I'd been thrust into this position, one of those, "Do you turn down this opportunity, or do you?" You know, it's like, is that door open for me? Is it supposed to be open? Do I go through it? And I chose to go through it. And I ended up anchoring this show for about six more years. And then I got a call that NBC was interested in me uh, to come in, uh, do some work for them. And they had this cable thing, MSNBC. And I'll, full disclosure, I was not watching MSNBC. In fact, the first time I'd interviewed Chris Matthews, I had no idea who he was. I was like, who's this man? <laughs> I was like, who? I mean, again, that was the late 90s. But they were like, oh, wow. Chris Matthews has a book he's plugging and he wants to be interviewed on your local show. I was like, all right. And I don't know the book. I think it was maybe his first book, but I had no idea who he was. So anyway. Yeah, it's probably about Kennedy because yeah, he probably writes was. books about he the sure Kennedys. He sure does. And I'm like, okay, let me catch myself up to speed on MSNBC and what's going on. Anyway, I go and I uh, interviewed and it was around the same time that the Don Imus thing happened. Uh, yes. And so the Don Imus thing like blew up. like 2007. Yeah. But that's the year I started. And I ended up getting the job offer. And I remember 
I was so upset that going back to the distortions and my conspiratorial energy, you know, I actually had the job before Don Imus happened, but I started after. And then I remember the very first time I, I, I knew that I was in the, you know, the big leagues, as Savannah calls it, you're in the big game. Savannah Guthrie, let's... One of our great friends, and she said, uh, the, I got a tweet calling me Token Hall. Oh. And I was like, Token Hall? Oh my gosh, they think I got hired because of Don Imus. And meanwhile, I'm like, no, I had already been in talks, but, you know, you can't dispute right. it, you go with it, and da-da-da. But that's that was the uh, the hard and real awakening that I had entering this world of national newscast. And then as a result of, of being on MSNBC, you became very popular very quickly. I remember we met because a friend of mine who was living in Florida at the time, now lives in the Middle East, uh, sent me a message saying, like, who is that? Aww. She looks like that woman from Star Trek. I said, you mean Lieutenant Uhura? <laughs> So that was our code name for yes. you. Oh, look, yes. Lieutenant Uhura is on. And so I remember sending you an email you saying, did. hey, I tell this story. It would be great. Could yeah. we have lunch? Yes. And when you said yes, I was like, oh, my God. She said yes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Who? I have to have lunch with someone who says I'm Lieutenant Uhura. I'm like, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you say no to that? <laughs> well, you didn't say no. And we went to lunch. And we have been friends. Ten years. Ever, ever since. Yeah. The, the ride you have had in those ten years mm -hmm. has been Amazing. So you go from MSNBC anchor, and then you are tapped to join the Today Show. Yeah. And then you're the, the co-anchor of the 9 o'clock hour. Mm -hmm. What was that like when that moment happened? You know, um, my mother is a very superstitious person, and as I am as well. And so when I got the job, well, when I went in to interview with Steve Kappas, I went in and I had a picture in my hand. I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly. I had a picture in my hand, and it was my mom and I pointing up at the Rockefeller Center sign. You know, the I marquee. Think, yeah, marquee. Mm -hmm. I think we're on 49 because we'd come to town to see the color purple, uh, the first incarnation of it mm -hmm. on Broadway. And my mom said, you're going to be working here in a year. And I'm like, whatever. You know, I guess I've been in Chicago for 10 years. I kind of figured I'd just be a Chicago anchor and enjoy my life there. Whatever. And I just got a new camera that had that time date oh, stamp, time stamp. And I couldn't get it to work because I brought the camera for the trip and whatever. I couldn't get the stupid thing to stop with the dates. I go into Steve Kappas' office. We were talking. We both graduated from Temple University. Hey, Temple Owls. And... I hand him a photo, and it's a year to the day. I'm in his office now, and I have the picture of my mom, and she's pointing up at the thing. And he, his, he started tearing up, and as did I, um, because he's very close to his mother, and I think um, there was something going on with his mom, and I was like, yeah, I'm here. And so that was this surreal moment. Well, that same day, uh, they had someone give me a tour, because that's a part of the luring your ends. Like, look at this. It's the Today Show. You could be on it one day. Because I was only talking about being on MSNBC with the promise of being used on the Today mm -hmm. Show. Um, that's the catnip, you know. And so I remember walking into the Today Show studio thinking, wow, it's so much smaller than it is on TV. Just the same things we always say right. when we visit somewhere. And I stood behind the desk, the newsreader desk. They don't have it anymore, but Ann Curry famously stood behind this desk. And I was standing behind the desk. And behind me on the monitor was a picture of George Bush. And I stood in front of the desk and I'm like, I'm going to be on this show. It's going to all work out. I know it. Um, and that was it. I didn't plot, plan. You know, I didn't, it wasn't, it was just something that I knew was an inevitable 
thing. Um, it wasn't a bucket list. It wasn't a goal. I always loved the Today Show. Um, I always watched it. I was a fan of just the energy of that show. And it was a younger at that time. It was the young choice of the others back when I was younger. Um, and so I knew I just I just knew that it would be a part of my my life. I didn't know I host an hour on the show. So when I uh, host that hour and, and learn that I was the first black woman, the first African-American woman to ever host an hour of the Today Show, I had no idea. Someone told me the same as when I anchored NBC Nightly News once I filled in for Lester Holt. And someone, I guess there are these people, historians that monitor these things, we get an email and it says, this is the first black woman to ever anchor the nightly news on NBC. And I'm like, what? Never occurred to me. And I was blown away. So like I said, when I was standing behind that desk that day as a part of the tour, I figured my hard work would pay off in some way, but never could have imagined in the way that it did. How did it feel to leave? Great. It felt great. It felt great to have an opportunity to pursue my next chapter. It felt great to decide what was best for me. Um, you know, a lot of complicated parts of it that I choose to leave in the past, honestly, because I think that, you know, there's a, I'm full of sayings and I get them wrong, but there's a saying about there's a reason that your front windshield is way bigger than your rear view mirror because the past is supposed to be small and your future is supposed to be large. So for me, I don't look back at the, the tick-tock of what happened. I know what happened and the details are irrelevant. What's relevant to me uh, is that I was able to choose my next step and that was important to me because I had always worked very hard. I didn't stop to smell the roses. Um, I was always looking like you. I mean, we work our tails off, so you're looking for, okay, you know. And sometimes you have this beautiful bouquet in front of you, and all you see are the thorns. All you see is the struggle to get to the next spot. And I was not stopping to smell the roses. So I felt that at this time, the universe, God, everything was pushing me to smell the roses because I just may not like roses. <laughs> Maybe I like daisies, <laughs> but I'm going to stop for a second to figure it out. So it was. It felt great. Can you talk about what what might lie ahead? I can't. You, you know, listen. I, I would love to be able to. I mean, it's very complicated. Again, you know, listen. Those thorns that come in your way. That did not derail any plans that I have to make what I hope is a wonderful return to television in the way that I want to return. I, and I love people on social media. Like, you should take this job. Look, this opening game. Look, this was great. And I could have been back on TV the next day. And that's not to say that in a boastful way or, or to pat myself on the back. Of course, you know, thank God people were offering and calling. I would hope so after 25 years of hard work and, and on TV that somebody would have called. But I had um, plenty of people who were calling and, well, is she available for this? What about this? What about that? We're putting together something that I hope will reflect where I am right now something that I hope will be appreciated by people. It's not aha TV. I'm no guru. I'm not, a, I'm not an exercise queen. I'm not any of those things. I'm not trying to be little Oprah, medium Oprah, side eye Oprah. I'm not trying to be anything <laughs> other than the complete total journalist that I hope that I am and that I hope that 25 years of experience has brought me to this. But most important, going back to your very first question, I hope that my return to television reflects 
the 25 years of exposure that I've had to a phenomenal audience of people, whether they're the people who are watching that you'll never meet or the people that I've run into on these speaking gigs that I have, whether it's the people that I've encountered as a reporter on the street in Bryan College Station in Dallas, I hope that my return wholly and from the, the, the bottom of my heart, I hope that it completely reflects the audience that I've interacted with and not this caricature, I think sometimes, of America that we buy into. One of the things I, I liked about your story about your mom in the picture and the NBC marquee and standing on the set and thinking, your mom saying, you're going to work here a year from now, you standing behind the desk saying, I'm going to work here. What I love about that is that it talks about dreams, mm-hmm. the importance of, of having dreams. And one of the things that I've I've come to understand and know is that most people don't have dreams. So, or are they are or is it that most people are afraid to express their dreams because sometimes on the other side is someone who's going to tell you that it won't happen? Because I actually think most people do dream. One of the things that I tell my nieces, my nephew and kids that come to me for advice, you have to be able to speak it out to someone that may not receive it because that's the ultimate form of confidence in your dreams. Because if you tell someone, I'm gonna be a singer one day, and the other person goes, oh, good luck with that, uh, I mean, okay, that's your first challenge, to prove them wrong. I remember, and I love her to death, and I won't identify her, but one of my professors at Temple, who later became one of my advisors, she said, if you think you're gonna just walk in and get your first TV job, you, you know, good luck with that. You know, the usual, like, I was like, is this Debbie Allen and fame? She's like, <laughs> fame calls with a stick and scared me to death. And I got my first on-air offer before I actually graduated. And I remember going to her, well, actually, I did get my first. She's like, listen, here's smarty pants. You know, <laughs> But I just feel like, I do feel like we all dream. It's that we are afraid to express those dreams for fear of the ear that's supposed to be open and encouraging actually being closed and hardened. Journalist, anchor, dear friend, Tamron Hall, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. We love Jonathan K-Bart and K-Pop. What? what? Thanks for listening to K-Pop. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.